gather tonight in a more somber than normal service. Our hearts are sorrowful as we think about what took place and what we commemorate on this day. Help us, Father, to get a glimpse of it. Help us, Father, as we we have sung the songs. Help us as we open your word. Lord, just speak to us about the realities that took place, not only on the cross, but in the days to follow. Help us tonight, Father, to examine our own hearts and lives and ask ourselves whether we've really considered the implications of these things to ourselves. Lord, it wasn't just a historical event. It wasn't just something that took place just just because something needed to take place. It was something that was personal. It was something that was real. It was done for us. So, Father, I pray as we, as we open your word for a moment, as we think through these things, that, Lord, you'll make it personal, that all of us will realize that what took place on that cross would have taken place for us if we'd been the only one who needed it. That while he was on that cross, we were on his mind. I was on his mind. Every one of us was. And so speak to us tonight, I pray. Help us, Lord, to rejoice for what Jesus did for us. And help us most of all to apply it to our hearts and lives and ask whether or not we have trusted this one who gave so much for us. Speak to us, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Mark chapter 15. The rest of the evening is going to go kind of like this. I'm going to to share just a little bit out out of the Word. And uh, then we're going to have one more song, and then after that we're going to have communion. And if you've been to one of our Good Friday services, you know we do communion a little bit differently on Good Friday. Uh, we, we try to uh, mix it up just a bit because we do communion every Sunday anyway. Uh, so what's going to happen at the end of the song, I've got a couple of the elders that are going to come, and uh, when we're finished singing that song, they'll just make their way to the front, and they're going to retrieve the trays, and then they're going to be standing right here on either side of the flowers. And uh, there's not going to be any other instructions. So if you want to participate in communion, just stand up and come to the front and take the bread and the juice. You can take it back to your seat and partake of it there. You can stand right there and partake of it, however you want to do it. But at that point, the service is over. And we would ask that you just leave quietly, yakking and talking like we're so prone to do in this place. Tonight's a different type of a service. So we'll finish the message, we'll have one more song, and then we will take communion. And then the service will be concluded for the, for the night. This past Lord's Day, we spoke on the topic that one would expect us to speak on tonight, which is the cross. We've sung about the cross uh, this evening, and uh, I think it's on our minds. But I want to speak on a different topic tonight, because actually, if we think about what time it is, And if we apply ourselves back to what time, this time in that actual day on the Friday of the crucifixion, Jesus was not on the cross. At this point, Jesus was in the grave. And so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want to talk to you about his burial, not the cross. What took place after the cross? Mark chapter 15, verse number 42, if you've got your Bible. And if you don't, just grab the one in front of you there in the seat in front of you and follow along. Mark chapter 15. We're just going to read six verses, starting with verse number 42. Mark 15, 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, 
the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses observed where he was laid. Six verses. Mark gives us only six verses here to help us grasp how the burial part of this story took place. And there are some details in there. There's a, there's a lot of information, even though it's only six verses. For example, we learn that it took place on Friday evening. Before the beginning of the Sabbath, we know from earlier in the passage, verse number 34, that Jesus died sometime shortly after the ninth hour. The ninth hour in the Jews' way of reckoning time would have been about 3 p.m. And we know that the Sabbath began at sundown on the preparation day, so 6 p.m. That's why I could say that at this point Jesus would have already been in the grave. That term in your Bible, preparation day, has a very specific meaning. It, it simply means Friday. It means the day before the Sabbath. I know that some people have erroneously taught that uh, Jesus was not crucified on Friday. that He was crucified on Wednesday. You may have heard that from, from some from time to time. But that's not true. The Bible is very, very clear, and this is one of the primary evidences. The use of that term is used throughout the Gospels. The preparation day or the day of preparation, it simply meant Friday. And so he died on the cross at 3. He had to be down off the cross and in the grave by 6. And so they had approximately three hours to accomplish the burial. During that time, he had to be taken down from the cross. He had to be washed, wrapped in linen cloths, placed in the tomb, and a stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb. Three hours. Now, the Jews' method of burial was to wrap the body in linen strips of cloth, fine linen, as Mark describes it for here in verse 46. All four gospel writers attest to this. John adds one interesting detail. He says that Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So the strips of cloth were not just wrapped around his body. They were impregnated with these spices and wrapped around his body. One commentator suggested that it, the, the process was probably something like this. After Jesus' body was removed from the cross, it was probably washed before it was wrapped tightly in strips of linen cloth with aromatic spices placed between the wraps. All this was in accord with Jewish burial customs at the time. So the body was, all that was done, and then after the body was taken down from the cross, after it was washed, after it was wrapped in linen, it was placed in a tomb. Verse number 46 tells us. Mark tells us two details about the tomb. He tells us that the tomb was, first of all, hewn out of a rock, and that it also had a stone that rolled over the door. Matthew clarifies it was not just any tomb, it was actually Joseph's tomb. His tomb. I, I was reading a commentary about this, and the person says, we cannot really know if this was Joseph's tomb. He obviously hadn't read Matthew's account, because Matthew very plainly said, his tomb. The fact that it was hewn out of rock is a detail mentioned by all three of the other Gospels. And Luke adds another interesting detail. He said it's a tomb wherein no one had ever lain before. So it was a brand new tomb, not yet used 
John gives the same detail and he adds yet another. He says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb which in which no one had yet been laid. So it was an unused tomb, hewn out of rock, with a stone across the door in the midst of a garden. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and, and, and visit the Holy Land, uh, one of the highlights of the pilgrimage is visiting the tomb. And, of course, we don't know exactly where the tomb is or was, but there are two different sites that are generally considered as good possibilities, and I've shared them with you before. One has the weight of centuries of tradition behind it, and it resides under an ancient church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The other is a newer discovery. It dates to about the 19th century. It's called the Garden Tomb and Gordon's Calvary. You may have seen pictures of Gordon's Calvary. It looks exactly like a skull. Uh, carved out of the rock. Uh, it's a natural formation, but it really does look like a skull. The weight of tradition seems to support the former. It seems to support that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre might be right, but there's also an awful lot of evidence that the garden tomb might be right, too. If you go there, you'll notice one thing. you notice it just looks like these descriptions that we're reading. It's in a beautiful garden. That garden's been there for the whole, you know, ever since Jesus' time. And that garden is within a stone's throw of Calvary, if that, if that uh, skull-like structure is indeed the right place. The, 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 the tomb is clearly carved from stone, hewn from stone. There are two slabs inside of that that are meticulously carved out of stone. And at the foot of one of the slabs, there's a place where it has been apparently hastily carved out after the fact. You've got it beautifully done and designed, and then it looks like somebody walked in there with a a chisel and a sledgehammer and just whacked a bunch out at the end as if this particular place was being used for someone for whom it was not originally designed. I've also been told that chemical analysis has been done on that particular tomb, the garden tomb, and the analysis indicates no body has ever decayed there. We don't know if that's the one. But if you ever get a chance to go there, it brings this alive. He was placed in a tomb. A stone was rolled over the opening to the grave, sealing it shut, according to verse number 46. Matthew says it was a large stone. And if that garden tomb in actuality is the right one, there is a huge stone trough that leads right down to the door. And the door is probably about four feet high. If you could imagine a stone that would have rolled down that and been that high, it was would have been a large stone indeed. The tomb was sealed shut with a circular flat stone that rolled down a sloping groove till it was securely in front of the entrance to keep out intruders. And to roll that stone back up again would require the strength of several men. That's how one commentator described it. So Mark gives us some important facts about the burial of our Lord. Jesus was taken from the cross sometime after the ninth hour. His body was wrapped in linen. It was placed in a tomb hewn out of rock, and a stone was rolled over the opening. Lot for just six little verses. But he gives us something else, too. He gives us a wonderful little glimpse here into the soul of a man that was not mentioned in Scripture up to this point. And I don't believe he's mentioned any time after this point, either. And that's Joseph of Arimathea. Interesting person. Mark tells us some things about him. He tells us in verse number 43 that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was a believer. He was someone who believed in Jesus. Matthew explains it more plainly when he writes that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus in Matthew 27, 57. Luke says about him that he was a good man and a just man. John 
probably gives the most complete description when he writes that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews in John chapter 19. From other passages, we know that he was a rich man. From Arimathea, we know that he was a council member, meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, probably a Pharisee. And we know from Luke chapter 23 that he had not consented to their decision and deed. In other words, when Jesus was being uh, tried and when his fate was being debated, he had not been one who agreed with what they wanted to do. But then we read this interesting verse, verse number 43. This Joseph, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You notice that anything there jump out at you? Taking courage. As I studied this, I had to ask myself the question, why why did Mark say that? All three of the other Gospels just mentioned that he went to Pilate. That's all they say. Only Mark said he had to screw up his courage first. What was there about his action that required courage? One man suggested perhaps it was this. His request amounted to an open confession of personal loyalty to the crucified Jesus, which would doubtless incur his associates' hostility. He would be a secret disciple no longer. Another suggested that by making this request, Joseph was running the risk of being expelled from the Sanhedrin and coming under the scorn of the common populace for identifying himself with this false, failed Messiah. What is more, he would himself be dressing a corpse during the hours of preparation for the Sabbath. And he would thus be ceremonially defiled. It was a huge act of courage. And it was even more elevated because there was absolutely nothing in it for him. Now Jesus was dead. The dream was over. It's interesting to me that Joseph had been a secret disciple up to this point. He had not had the courage to speak up for Jesus before. When Jesus was on trial before the council, apparently Nicodemus had spoken up. But there's no record whatsoever that Joseph did. So this heretofore cowardly form of belief that he had, it could disagree with condemning Jesus, but do absolutely nothing to stop it. That was Joseph. He's a reminder to us, isn't he, of the uselessness and powerlessness and cowardice of secret discipleship. Secret disciples accomplish nothing for Jesus. Nothing. Secret disciples only accomplish something when their faith becomes known and they're no longer secret and they're open for all to see. And Joseph displays that part of the equation wonderfully because when he finally did step out, cast aside his fear, take courage, and openly profess Jesus, he became a mighty part of the story. When his belief was secret, it accomplished nothing. When he came out openly as a Christian, he did something wonderful for Jesus. And we have to stop right there. We have to ask ourselves a question. All of us ought to be asking ourselves a question. Am I a secret disciple? Are you a secret disciple? To those outside of your church family, I mean, obviously, everyone here tonight is going to think that you're a believer because you're sitting here. But to those outside of your church family, know you love Jesus? I'm talking about, you know, those you work with. Those you spend time with, your weekdays and your weekends with, your, your family and your friends, your neighbors and associates, do they know? Because consider if that answer is, the answer to that question is no. Then your secret belief is accomplishing nothing for Jesus. And never will. We need to take courage. 
We need to learn from Joseph of Arimathea to take courage and let the world know we believe. Because only then can we accomplish anything for him. Well, he gives us another detail here. One other detail he provides for us is that the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid, verse 47. And so the account, all his six verses and all that he's told us there concludes, Jesus is dead, he's buried, he's wrapped in linen, he's laid in the tomb, and he's sealed behind a stone. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, helped to bury him. And two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, carefully noted the location. How can this be? Buried was he. Remember who he was. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus, the very Son of God. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the great I am. Jesus, the creator and ruler of the universe, buried in a tomb. Why? Why? I want to suggest three reasons. It'll only take me a minute. Three reasons why the burial of the Savior was so important. Here's the first. The burial of the Savior was important because it was and is a key component of the gospel. It's a key component of the gospel. You know, we're going to come to the end of this study very shortly. We've been in the gospel of Mark forever. And we're going to be done in just another couple of weeks. And when we get to the very end, we're going to notice Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, where he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our job. That's our task as Christians, to preach the gospel to every creature. But what is that gospel? The word means good news. What is that good news? What is this message that we are to preach and which we must believe in order to be saved? Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, gives us a pretty good statement about it. He, he states it quite plainly. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so there it is. The core of the gospel is this. Three things. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose. That's it. That's the gospel. And we can leave no part of that out. We have to believe it all. It's important we not slack when we get to this account of the burial because it's part of it. And we cannot leave it out. It's important that enough that each of us believe the account of his burial because to not believe it is to not believe the gospel and to be lost. You cannot leave any part of that out. You cannot be saved without believing all the gospel. You have to believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you're lost. Some people might say, well, that's a little harsh, that's a little narrow. Well, don't take my word for it. Read your Bible and see what it says. Paul told the Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, what? That God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You have to believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. And how can you believe in the resurrection if you don't believe that he was resurrected from something? You have to believe in the burial. And if you believe in the burial, you have to believe in the death. You can't believe, you can't leave any part of those out. And so the burial is important because it's a key component of the gospel. But there's another reason. The burial is important because it officially confirmed his death. I don't know if you noticed, but as we read through these six verses, I don't know if you noticed, but it's chock full of evidence. Evidence confirming that Jesus was indeed dead. In verse number 44, we see Pilate marveling because Jesus had died 
so soon. In most cases, crucifixion was a slow, lingering, horrible, excruciating process that oftentimes took days, which is one of the reasons why they asked to have the legs broken of those who were hanging on the cross because the Sabbath was drawing near, and they didn't want them to be remaining there as they normally would have. But Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, now there's another detail that only Mark records, that Pilate asked for the centurion and by requiring the testimony of a trusted witness. Pilate's inquiry provides more evidence that Jesus was truly dead. His Roman readers, Mark's Roman readers, would have heard that and thought, wow, this was confirmed by a Roman military officer. The whole narrative provides evidence that Jesus was really and truly dead. The facts about the crucifixion and the unlikelihood of anybody being able to survive it ought to be enough. But we have more evidence than that. We have the request by Joseph for burial. You don't make a request for burial for a living person. It's evidence that he was dead. We have the testimony of the soldier both at the foot of the cross and before Pilate. We have the manner of burial wrapped in 100 pounds of spice uh, impregnated strips of linen. We have the sealing of the tomb. All of these things taken together are evidence that Jesus was without question dead. And you say, well, come on, this is silly. Why are you beating on this? Because ever since that resurrection, ever since that took place, there have been attempts to prove just the opposite, that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And, and, and because of the fact, and we'll see this this coming Lord's Day when we talk about uh, the resurrection, the evidence of the tomb being empty on Sunday morning is incontrovertible. It cannot be denied. No one really denies that the tomb was empty on, on that Sunday morning. And no one can deny the fact that hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive. And so if someone is going to try to, uh, to, to disprove the resurrection, they have to instead take a different direction. They have to say, well, wait a minute now. If he wasn't in the tomb, then he must not have really been dead. And so they've come up with all kinds of crazy and strange things. Things like the swoon theory. Ever hear of the swoon theory? Been put forth for years, suggesting Jesus wasn't really dead. That when Jesus was laid in the tomb, he was maybe just comatose, just, you know, in a really bad way from having hung on the cross and being scourged almost to death and having bled out almost every drop of his blood. Uh, and then in the coolness and dampness of the tomb, he revived. And he stood up and he pushed that monstrous stone aside and he came out. And this decrepit, blood-soaked, messed up, horribly ruined human being, uh, walked into town and everybody said, wow, look at him, he must be the Son of God. That's the ridiculous theory. It's ridiculous on all counts, but it's the kind of thing people have put forth. And so Mark and the other gospel writers have given us this incontrovertible evidence that Jesus not only died, but he was buried. It's the evidence, it's the proof. Bill Gaither wrote, actually probably Gloria wrote it, but we sing it all the time, the empty grave is there to prove my Savior lived. And it's wonderful. But before it ever proved evidence of the resurrection, it was indisputable evidence of his death. That tomb was evidence that he died. And even the very words Mark used make the case. In verse number 45, Pilate, or, uh, yeah, he granted the body to Joseph. The Greek word there is not soma, body, but ptoma, which means corpse, corpse. Jesus was dead. Perhaps J.C. Ryle says it best. He said, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ is the most important fact in Christianity. 
On it depends the hopes of all saved sinners, both for time and eternity. We need not, therefore, be surprised to find the reality of his death carefully placed beyond dispute. Three kinds of witnesses to the fact are brought before us in these verses. The Roman centurion who stood near the cross, the women who followed our Lord from Galilee to Jerusalem, and the disciples who buried him. They were all witnesses that Jesus really died. Their united evidence is above suspicion. They could not be deceived. What they saw was no swoon or trance or temporary unconsciousness. They saw that same Jesus who was crucified lay down his life, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let this be established in our minds. Our Savior really and truly died. So the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ is a key component of the gospel. The burial is uh, indisputable evidence of his death, but there's another reason, one final reason why it's important this evening, and that's this. The burial pictured the very despair that the resurrection would soon dispel. It pictured the very despair the resurrection would soon dispel. Let me read a quote from somebody who says this well. He said, if that was it, if, if after Joseph of Arimathea experienced his elevation of soul, giving Jesus an honorable burial, if there was nothing else, the name of Jesus of Nazareth would be no more than a passing note in Josephus. If that. Why? Because Joseph of Arimathea, as well as the disciples, Mary and the godly women at the cross, all went through the greatest despair and depression of their earthly existence, seemingly without a glimmer of hope. Without the resurrection, that depression would never have lifted. That Saturday before the resurrection was a day of desolation, shattered dreams, gloom, and inertia. Think, think how it was for Mary. A sword had pierced her soul. Think of Peter's paralyzing guilt, beloved John's heartache, Mary Magdalene's despair. All of us have experienced something of this feeling in our lives. The fact is there are more people living today in the despair and darkness of Dark Saturday than have ever lived in the drama of Friday or the victory of Easter. As one preacher has written, someone has called our present generation Saturday's children, and it is an apt term. Our great American cities are for the most part teeming with pools of human misery where people live out their days in a kind of ritual dance toward death with no hope. Illusion. In the midst of an increasingly godless world, despair grips people's hearts everywhere. Hopelessness and meaninglessness come crushing in on us from every side. And without the resurrection, we are all Saturday's children. We may see that Christ has done a heroic thing on the cross. We may even see it as the consummate act of love in the universe, but there is no power in it. If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The story is not over. And as we'll see in the next chapter, the resurrection of Christ brought that hope. It brought meaning and purpose. It made everything make sense. But in order for Christ to be raised, he had to first be dead and buried. And you see him lying there. And you see his corpse, bloodied, battered, drained, pierced, lifeless. And you see him encircled in linen, entombed in rock, 
And you see this one who brought such hope for the future laid so low that all hope seemed extinguished. Can you see the despair of his loved ones? Can you feel Mary's pain? Peter's shame. John's distress. Mary Magdalene's confusion. Can you get a sense for the utter hopelessness that was in the hearts of all during those three days that he was buried in that tomb? It is a picture. It is a picture of the shame and the, sh- and the pain and the distress and the confusion and the hopelessness as part of the world in which so many live even today. Having no hope or understanding for their future. Living in the pain and confusion and distress that such hopelessness engenders. Because without the living Christ, we live in a world as devoid of hope as was that dark, damp, dead tomb for those three days. Christ entombed seemed the end of hope. But Christ didn't stay entombed. I ask you tonight, do you believe these things, my friend? Because you must. If you would ever enter into the joy of the one who died for you, you must believe that he died and that he was buried. And yes, that he rose again. Praise God the story doesn't end here. Praise God that he did rise and he lives forever. We'll talk about that this coming Lord's Day. But for that briefest of time, from Friday afternoon through Sunday morning, he did lay dead. And he was buried. Well, let us pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the reality of these things. Hard truths, sad truths, such needed truths. Father, there was no other way. Jesus himself had said, the Son of Man must, must die. Go to the cross, be buried, and then rise again. There was no other way that my sins could be forgiven. There was no other way that any of us could have eternal life. There was no other way. And so I thank you that he was willing. I I thank you that he did die on the cross, and I thank you that he did lay in the grave. Because only when all of that was passed and he burst forth from it could there be any hope. Help us to all see it tonight as we, as we sing this closing song, as we partake of communion in just a moment. I just pray, Father, that we'd all get a glimpse of this. And that as we leave this place tonight in silence and hopefully thoughtfulness, Lord, we'll just consider what Jesus did for us. And maybe you'll just make it fresh and new and help us to see clearly just how much Jesus loved us and loves us, that he would go through all this, that we might be saved. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the tomb. And thank you in his name.